we're really glad you're here, and I desperately need some prayer before I launch into today's message, because I'm diving in deep to an area that in sometimes uh, it, it feels above my pay grade. <laughs> so let me pray, and we'll begin looking at Daniel 7, the last portion of that chapter. Father, we thank you for the worship we've already experienced this morning. Some of us through the pre-service music, where you've stirred our souls. Some through these scriptures that Steve has shared with us that are so appropriate for what we're going to be looking at today. Some who tuned in at 930 to the growth encounter because you continually speak to us in deep ways about things that will definitely relate to today's message. I thank you that because of this technology, we're together, even though we're apart. And I pray that we'll have a sense that we are participating and not just us, but people literally all over the world who are kingdom people, because your kingdom, as we're going to discover, will last forever. And those who are a part of it will last forever in your presence. I pray that you will keep me from interjecting my personality and my opinions about today's lesson. And I pray that as we look into your word, your spirit will guide us and be the true teacher. And I pray that you'll guard me against the temptation that I will be guarding others against. And that is that sometimes I can feel so right about my position that I spend more time defending my position than loving somebody else and trying to point them to Jesus Christ. I pray that you will guide all of us through your spirit into a greater and deeper awareness of who you are so that we can know you personally. And I know that you want that to happen. And so I'm grateful that that's the kind of prayer that you love to answer. And I pray that you'll answer it this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're continuing in Daniel chapter 7. We're getting into some apocalyptic literature, some of which is very difficult to understand. And I'm going to do my very best to get us through this. And I have a lot of material to uh, march through today. So as we would say from that favorite professor, hike up your skirts, gentlemen, we're going to run today. <laughs> Last week, we saw the first three empires represented in the king's dream in chapter two and how they corresponded with the empires in the parallel chapter of chapter seven which happened with a different king. And this time it was Daniel who had the dream instead of the king. But marvelously, and it's gotta be a supernatural way of happening, these two things augment one another and they actually complement one another in a very peculiar and miraculous way. We can see that the very first kingdom in that first dream was Babylon, the head of gold. Uh, we know that the Medes and Persians came next because they conquered Babylon and there were several kings in the process of Babylon moving through its empire and its history before the Medes and Persians came along. And we also know through the prophet Jeremiah that God had promised because of Babylon's bad behavior early on that it would never be rebuilt. And that has remained true even to this day. So then we have the Medes and Persians depicted as having the chest and arms of silver in chapter two's dream about that huge statue. And then in chapter seven, the bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. That we know 
the Medes and Persians, were conquered by Alexander the Great. And that's what ushered in the Greek Empire. And then we had the thighs of bronze as part of that great huge statue in the original dream in chapter two. And that third kingdom would be the kingdom of Greece. That's what came next in the succession of kingdoms that were predicted because of that original dream. Well, Daniel 7, 6 gives us greater detail because of the leopard, the animal that was starting to give us a little different uh, feel for the character qualities, not only of this particular uh, empire, but it also shows us something that pushes us ahead in history about 200 more years beyond the Greek empire. This leopard was also described as having four heads, and these were given the authority to rule, it says in chapter seven. Now, looking back at history, which is great because we have that to look back at, which is why we have such a clear view of what these things actually do mean now, didn't mean that to Daniel. In fact, he said, I don't know what this stuff means yet. We know what it means because we have hindsight. And we know that the leopard, because of its four heads, represent the diadochi. If you want a good memory device, you can remember, okie dokie, diadochie. And I'll bet some of you just said that out loud. <laughs> okie dokie, diadochie. But the diadochi were those four most fierce generals that followed Alexander, who was very young, 33, in fact, when he died. And they were trying to carve out their slices of an empire-sized pie. And we understand that after Alexander's death, there was this period that morphed into what we now consider the Hellenistic age. And that's that age that went all the way up to uh, the defeat of Cleopatra and Mark Antony in 31 BC. So that takes us right on up toward the Roman Empire. Now, in the rearview mirror with history, all these things in Daniel become far clearer. But things are about to change a little bit. And we're going to have a shift in focus, as I alluded to briefly last week. And what we see in the future is not quite as crystal clear. And we're going to see why that's important, too. Thanks to history, we can look back at these first three beasts or these three kingdoms and their rulers in chapters two and seven and recognize what God was showing us. Daniel didn't know what these things meant, but he was faithful to communicate what God revealed to him. And now we have it as an encouragement to trust God for our future. The same should be true for us. We should be faithful and obedient to communicate what we know to be true. And even if we don't understand everything else, that's okay. It was okay for Daniel. It should be okay for us. If there are things that we don't have crystal clear in our minds, be faithful to communicate what we do know particularly as it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as Paul would say later in the New Testament, that was of first importance. And that's what all this is aiming at. Now, after the first three empires in the original chapter two dream, we see a divergence. It's the differences between the final beast of chapters two and seven, not the similarities that point us in a future direction. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 28 of chapter 7, and then we're going to compare the final kingdoms shown in chapters 2 and 7, and you'll see why it's not Rome. That's a spoiler alert right there. Starting at verse 7, and this is chapter 7 of Daniel. After that, in my vision at night, 
I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, aha, here comes a difference, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Little parenthetical note right here, after verse 8, this horn usually symbolized the authority and power of a ruler. And when we see that it had eyes like a human being, that's not an animal attribute like we had in the first three kingdoms. This is a human attribute and also the mouth that spoke boastfully. So this is what signals something very different for us. And it's terrifying, perhaps because it looks like Daniel is not describing some sort of an empire that has animal characteristics, but there's something to do with a human being in the future. Now, picking up at verse nine, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Can you imagine a throne with blazing wheels? A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Wouldn't you love this imagery? That's what dreams and visions can do for us. And those symbolisms become very, very important. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's some of those symbolic numbers that we're going to look at a little bit later too. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Does that sound familiar to some of us who've been reading the New Testament? Jesus used to refer to himself quite often as the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And does that sound familiar from one of the songs that we sing? <laughs> Days of Elijah, behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun at the trumpet's call. Okay, okay sorry. Right. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. This is a big event. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. That's important. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All right, then we get to verse 15. I, Daniel, this is the context. Remember I said we have the text and then the context? Here's some context. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. That's that great sea of people that God was stirring. 
but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. And then just in case we didn't get it, yes, forever and ever. Every time we see a, a couplet or a double uh, repetition that way, it's meant for great emphasis. It means really, really. Kind of like when Jesus would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto thee. This is very much for an emphasis there. His kingdom will be possessed by his people and they will possess it forever and ever. Then verse 19, I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. That's the good news part of this dream, after the terrifying part. Verse 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will rise, different. From the earlier ones, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. We're going to very briefly look at that phrase in today's lesson. Verse 26, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled in my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Let's pray once again. Lord, these things seem too wonderful for me to be able to completely understand. And I'm praying for guidance and wisdom, and I pray that all of us would continue to look to you for this same kind of guidance and wisdom as we try to figure out what you're trying to teach us about yourself and how we can apply it to our everyday lives as we live faithfully and with hope because of this promised return. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's start comparing the final kingdom in chapters 2 and 7. Are you ready? Okay, good for you. The last kingdom depicted in chapter 2 is the one with the legs of iron, but with feet made out of a composite material. Remember that? It had some baked clay mixed in with that, which means that it was vulnerable and it was going to become divided and eventually crushed. Well, that we know now was Rome. 146 BC all the way through to 400 AD. 
So by looking back at history, we can see that this was the final kingdom of chapter two. Uh, the Roman Empire would become divided, as was predicted. The new kingdom that was going to be coming along was going to eventually crush all the other kingdoms, and it would last forever. But there's nothing that says that it was going to crush the old kingdom immediately. So it seems like that because of the kinds of words that are being used here, it's pointing us, again, like I said, to a farther future event so that eventually there would be a crushing happening. Kind of harkens back all the way to the Proto-Evangelium, some of that uh, Genesis chapter 3, when we see that eventually uh, Christ was going to be crushing the serpent. I think that same word is used in both, if I remember correctly. Well, we can see that there were these four empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. That was the four kingdoms predicted or shown in chapter 2 because of the original dream that Daniel was given that supernatural ability to interpret. Rome did, in fact, become a world empire. We know that. But it did become divided. It became weak because of intermarriages and because people lost sight of their overall goals. And so Rome was actually the last full empire to rule the entire known world. We don't see any other kind of empire like that since, since that time. So here's the main point of chapter 2. It's given to us in verses 44 and 45 of chapter 2. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, two pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. So that's a foreshadowing at the end of chapter 2 that points us to chapter 7 so that we can understand that he's going to be taking us beyond Rome into a farther future event. All right. So the kings who ruled during that Roman Empire in the time of those kings, well, which kings? During the rule of Rome. That's when this new kingdom arose. The rock that came out of that, and it was not made by human hands, that was Jesus Christ. That's pointing ahead to the Messiah, because that happened during the reign of those kings in the Roman Empire. The rock, the one cut out of the mountain, was not made by human hands, and that would eventually smash the other four kingdoms mentioned in the dream of chapter 2. The fourth kingdom, the kingdom of God, that began during the era of Roman dominance would expand and fill the whole earth, as it would say in 235. That kingdom exists today. It's still expanding. It's still filling the whole earth. People are still propagating this kingdom because they're speaking forth the gospel, which is the keys to that kingdom, and more people are being let in all the time. So here are, here are two things, a dozen and a does from chapter two. Daniel two doesn't do something and it does do another thing. It doesn't predict the end of the new kingdom to emerge during the Roman empire. It does predict the inauguration of this new kingdom during the Roman empire. That's the importance of Daniel two. It's the inauguration of the kingdom of God. 
That's why we needed to see Rome as the fourth kingdom in chapter two. It was so important because we know that's when the Messiah came. And we have so many validating points of that, not only in the New Testament, but hearkening back to the Old Testament prophecies and predictions as well. So we now have the inauguration of the kingdom, which came in the form of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Here's something about Jesus' words about when. And of course, these times we're talking about would be the second coming rather than the first coming. I find them very apropos to some things that people try to do when we're looking at the kingdom uh, and the second coming of Christ. The kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. There were religious leaders who were asking him about that. He says, no, 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 the kingdom of God cannot be detected by visible signs. That's important. Isn't it interesting that an awful lot of people today look really deeply into books like Daniel and Revelation, for example, because they want to know the specific physical signs associated with God's second coming so they can speculate on the specific human leaders and political alliances and international events and nations and the rulers of those nations and even the identity of the Antichrist. Hmm. Listen again to Jesus' reply to the religious leaders who were asking when the kingdom of God would come meaning the inauguration of this kingdom. The kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs or by your speculations. And then let me continue. You won't be able to say, oh, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is really among you. And it means literally physically among you so that you can grasp it. Some people have, and I think this is not as an appropriate uh, translation said within you. Some people have tried to pervert that by saying, oh, we just have to look inside ourselves because that's where we can find the truth. Not unless the Holy Spirit is there. Among you is much more appropriate because Jesus was standing among them and he was saying, basically, I am inaugurating this new kingdom. I'm standing among you. You can touch me. You can grasp me and you can grasp the kingdom and you can grasp what God is trying to accomplish. And it's not going to be by human efforts with human politics and human armies. It's not about an earthly takeover. <laughs> this eternal kingdom is spiritual. And he kept trying to say that to folks. He was very adamant about that. He was telling them that he was inaugurating the kingdom of God. They were hungering for an earthly style king. They wanted the kind of Messiah that they hoped for who could ride in on a white stallion and lead the army in a huge insurrection and wipe out the leaders, especially in Rome of that day, and usher in this physical, earthly time of peace and prosperity. And Jesus continually said, it's not going to be the way you think it's going to be. It's a spiritual reality that I'm trying to present to you, and it's one that will never end. Can't help but ask this question. Have things changed much in 2,000 years? Let's move on, shall we? Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, affirming his power and authority through his teachings and miracles. And while on earth, he passed the keys to the kingdom, a.k.a. the gospel, the good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, into the hands of the apostles who would continue to pass it along to others. And you and I still have access to these same keys because every time we tell somebody about the truth of the gospel, they have access into this kingdom. And then we see this fourth kingdom in chapter 7. 
it's not Rome. First, in Daniel 2, this is one of the ways that we know that it's not Rome, we have a symbol of the four kingdoms represented by that statue, the one made of four different types of materials, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. But in Daniel 7, we see a break from this depiction. The first three animals are different from each other, but they're still related as animals in order to show different attributes that go even deeper than what we saw in chapter two. We see a lion, a bear, and a leopard. But the fourth beast is very unique, as we saw when we were reading through that passage. It has different attributes. You remember what those attributes related to? Human attributes. Eyes like a human's and a mouth that was boastful and arrogant. The fourth beast is different and according to Daniel is exceedingly terrifying. In verse 19 of chapter 7, there was something unique and very terrifying about this particular beast. By asking one of those who stood by from verse 10, remember that there were 10,000s upon 10,000s, which is sort of a euphemism of saying an unlimited number of people guarding the, the throne or gathered around there perhaps to worship. Most assume that means angels. And Daniel asked one of those, probably an angel, what is the meaning of all this stuff? And he learned that the 10 horns represented 10 kings. But guess what? Rome didn't have 10 kings. The Roman Empire had over 60 kings. So we know it's not Rome. The new and terrifying kingdom will be different from all the other kingdoms. In chapter 7, we're seeing a glimpse into the future. Now, you'll also remember from last week, this is important, students, that we had three things that would help us start to come to grips with what the real meaning of all this is, and that is that we have the text, the context, and the new text, the New Testament. And in fact, at the very beginning of this study, we saw that the New Testament is the thing that unlocks the scroll that had been sealed. It's unsealing the scroll so that we can understand that, and the one who unseals it is the lamb, who is the unblemished lamb, who was slain and conquered Satan and death once and for all. It was Jesus. He's the one who unsealed the scroll for us. So now we have this text. We saw some context because it says, and this was the explanation because Daniel asked for it. And we also have the new text. And this is where it gets really important. So I want you to lean a little bit closer and turn up your volume if you have to. This is important. The New Text includes some words even from the Apostle Paul, who's referring to this future kingdom, and he refers to this same ruler as the lawless one. Paul taught believers in Thessalonica, Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the letters written to the believers back there, that the power of evil is already at work in the world, but this one personification of evil, this lawless one, the human leader that will manifest all this evil in a terrifying and unprecedented way has not yet been revealed. And here's the kicker. This is important. This lawless one, AKA the beast, AKA the antichrist, won't be revealed until God's time. Listen to Paul's own words. And now you know what is holding him back, meaning this evil one so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Who is this restrainer, the one who's holding him back? It's the Holy Spirit of God himself. God's the only one powerful enough to hold back the power of Satan. And he's continuing to do so. 
And all it would take would be for God to say, I'm done. I've had enough. I release you into your own consequences. That's what he does for us. And he doesn't have to abide with us forever. He even said so. We can combine that with some looking back at cross-referencing Genesis 6, 3. He says, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. And then the lawless one will be revealed. God is holding things in place by the word of his mouth and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when it's time, when God decides, okay, all this gospel has been preached to every nation on the planet, and my time is right, then he's going to reveal who this lawless one is. But not one minute before then. So look what shows up in the first part of verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. That spirit will step aside. He will unleash the restraint that he has had on us. And then it's going to get bad because that lawless one who's going to have this kingdom around the whole globe is going to wage war against God's people. And he's going to be appearing to win. He is going to be winning for a season. But God's going to do something fantastic because eventually he's going to overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy this evil one by the splendor of his coming. That's the promise. Interesting how he can simply destroy something by the breath of his mouth. And why not? He spoke the world into existence. That's the power of God's word. He can destroy something by that same word of his mouth. Let's look at the big picture with text, context, and new text from Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and 2 Thessalonians. God's going to inaugurate a new kingdom. Well, we see that. We can see it because we have hindsight. We have history. It's clear in the rearview mirror. Yes, he did so, and he did so during the time of the Roman Empire, and he did so through the person of Jesus Christ who fulfilled all those prophecies in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, in the future, an evil ruler will reign over the whole world until the Ancient of Days pronounces judgment in favor of his people. Yay, God wins. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God won't reveal who that evil one is yet. He will reveal it in his good time. Why wouldn't, wouldn't he reveal it earlier than that? Why wouldn't he be more specific? You can go to Jesus' parables and know that it's going to be a surprise to everybody. If I was working in a job and the boss left me in charge and he said, okay, I'm going away for a time. And when I come back, I want to see things running smoothly. I want to make sure that you've been a good steward of all that I've left behind. If I knew specifically when he was coming back, what might the temptation be? <laughs> well, I think all of us have that temptation. We might let our guard down. We might say, eh, we don't have to take this very seriously. There are any number of reasons why he wouldn't want to be specific about that. God makes it clear in the New Testament through Jesus that it's going to be a shock. It's going to be a surprise to other people when he does come back. So it's when God decides to reveal who this person is, that's when we're going to know it. We can't know it before he does that revealing. Also, this promise from Daniel 7, after the Ancient of Days has pronounced judgment against this beast, the holy people will take over the kingdom. That's good news because that means that God's going to usher in that era. And finally, finally, there's going to be this wonderful era when God is ruling and his ruling is going to last forever and his people will be in his presence and he will be perfectly the ruler of all of them. That's something we know is going to happen. We just don't know exactly when or how necessarily. What did I tell you about obsessing over the identity of the Antichrist? 
to not do. <laughs> to not do. There are so many things that we try to obsess over. So what should we do instead of spending all of our time trying to figure something out that God says, I'll let you know it. I'll make it clear when the time is right. What should we be doing? We can see it in Paul's words to the Thessalonians. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Oh, guess what? We still have that letter. <laughs> we have all these letters and we have the gospels in the New Testament so we can stand firm and hold fast and remain faithful because we have the hope based on all the history in hindsight, looking back at Daniel chapter two, that the fourth beast from chapter seven won't ultimately prevail. That's the hope we have looking forward into history. Now, I need you to buckle your seatbelts because we're gonna have to take a fast wild ride through some information that you need. And this is the appropriate time in this study for you to get a quick overview of some things related to what some people would consider the interpretation based on one little verse in Revelation 20, verse two, the word millennium. Oh, it has created so many different views <laughs> and four major views, but they have so many little permutations among them and little facets of them. But you need to know the basics, just the, the rudiments of that, so that when you hear these spoken of in the future, you'll understand what I'm talking about at a basic level. But what I'm, I want to be very clear about this. What I'm not doing is presenting the view that I think is the correct biblical view. And that if you agree with me, then we're going to be fine because we've got the right view. In fact, that's the opposite of what I'm trying to present here. I'm trying to show you that there's something far more important than having the correct view of the millennium. Hmm. All right. These are distinctly different views about when Christ will return and when the Ancient of Days will pronounce judgment on the beast and he'll usher in this millennium or thousand year reign. All right, here we go. Here are the four. Premillennialism. The word millennium means a thousand years and it's referring to a thousand year reign. Premillennialism. Well, the word pre makes it pretty easy to understand that. Christ will return before the millennium reign. And it seems to make sense if he's going to be reigning, he should be here to reign, right? Okay. Post-millennialism, this one's a little perplexing for some because we think, well, how can he reign after that thousand year reign? How can he, or how can he return after that reign? Well, that's because the church is his agency and they're the ones that have been building this kingdom before he comes back to rule. That's, that's the way they look at it, post-millennialism. Then amillennialism is there's not a literal 1,000 years. They just say it refers to uh, an era, a length of time, because they see that as being metaphoric, as most of the numerology is in apocalyptic literature, quite frankly. So they would say, the amillennialists would say something like, we're in that era right now because the amillennial period started when Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected, and he placed his Holy Spirit in believers so that he's indwelling with us already and we're already experiencing the kingdom. We don't have to wait for the pie in the sky by and by. Oh my. Amillennialism would say that's meaning that most of the things that have been predicted that would happen before his coming have already come true, which means he could come at any moment. <laughs> and so we better be ready. Well, all of these would also say we need to be ready. And that's kind of the point. Then there's this other thing that came along about uh, 200 years ago or so, and that's dispensationalism. 
And dispensationalism is something that looks at a broader framework for all of the Bible, and it puts it into seven different dispensations or divine eras. And it's sort of progressive in its theology, progressing from one era to the next. And they would say that now we're in the church age or the church era. And that would probably line up with some of the other views as well, but it's much more involved and very specific. And they tend to, most dispensationalists, tend to be very specific and literal in taking numbers, both in Daniel and Revelation, and trying to make them come out to be something literal, like a literal seven-year tribulation, which means that if you're a mid-tribber, I'll get to that in just a second, that would be three and a half literal years into the tribulation that the rapture is going to happen. All right. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, then we have something else that can really cloud the issue, and that is, when is the rapture going to come, and is it a real rapture? Because the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible, although there is being caught up with Jesus that does appear in Scripture, and that's what most people are referring to when they're referring to the rapture. So there are those who say that there's the pre-tribulation rapture, that fortunately, and this became really popular because of some books and movies starting in about the 70s, 1970s, including the late great planet Earth from Hal Lindsey and others. And then, of course, there was the Left Behind series of books, and it was made into a movie. And, I mean, who wouldn't want to be pulled away from the tribulation before it happens, right? I can see the, the appeal to that. But I don't see a lot of scriptures that completely support that. I see a lot of holes in that theory. <laughs> then there's the mid-tribbers that would say halfway through the tribulation, then the rapture is going to happen so that the Christians will see what's going on around us. They'll remain faithful and true, and they'll stand for truth. And then suddenly something's going to happen, and some of these people left behind will go, oh, they were trying to tell me about that, and they're gone. What's going on? That's the mid-tribbers. Then we got the post-tribulation, which happens after the tribulation. People will point to some of Paul's words and say, those who have stuck it out to the end, and we might be, it may be that it would be after the tribulation. And there's others, including many of the amillennialists, who would say, that's just a metaphor. When we die, our soul rises to meet Jesus in the air, and so that is our rapture, and that will happen to everybody. And so it's not necessarily just because of a specific, literal uh, length of time like a seven years, as would be in the book of Revelation. So, are you with me now? Have I made you completely confused? Are your minds as clear as mud? That's what can happen if you start to dive in too deeply with these things. I read a huge, thick, encyclopedic book in seminary, and there were four different, kind of like four books within a book. It was really more of an anthology, and each author who had spent more than 30 years studying these things, presented each view separately. There's the pre-trib, mid-trib, all that stuff is in there, including the dispensationalism, which, which was the fourth. And after I would read the first, I would think, man, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I'm a premillennialist. And then I would read the second one and go, ooh, yeah, boy, that's different. I don't know. I, I think maybe I'm going to be this, this other one. And then you get to the third one, I think, ooh, they poked holes in the first two as well. And this one makes a lot more sense to me. By the time I got to the end, I was so confused. And I said, if each of these guys can dedicate 30 years each, 120 combined years of expertise, and if they can't really com completely agree with one another, maybe there's something more important that I should be looking for. And that's what I'm hoping to present to you today, that there is something, I believe, from scriptures, including the New Testament, that we should hold more uh, important than just having the correct view of eschatology or end times.
So Hank Hanegraaff, interesting guy. He's called the Bible Answer Man. He's got this call-in radio show. I used to listen to him quite a bit in my car. He's been around for decades, and he's so brilliant. He has so much knowledge of the Bible, deeply ingrained. And somebody was trying to pin him down. Which view is the correct view, or which view is your view? And he'd say, they all have problems. That's what I experienced when I was reading that huge, thick book in seminary. They all have problems, and that's very true. They all do have problems, and if we're trying to define the one that we think is right, and then we defend it, and we're spending all of our time defending it, then what have we done? We've lost our focus, and we're not trying to present the keys to the kingdom so that people can get let into the kingdom of God. Instead, we've just become modern-day legalists who are actually locking people out. That is terrible, and we shouldn't do that. So now let's look at the new text, and this is something we need to see so clearly about the surprise element of when Jesus does decide to come back again. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What's lightning like? It's so sudden that we don't see it coming. Joy and I, back in our other house a few years ago, we still lived in Tecumseh at the time, we were watching a storm roll in, and it was an amazing storm. It's mesmerizing, and we were counting the number of seconds between the time we could see the lightning and the time we heard the thunder, and we were realizing, ooh, yeah, it's getting shorter and shorter. I think we better get inside the house. No sooner than we stepped inside the house and the door shut than a bolt of lightning hit the tree 15 feet from where we had been standing. I mean, it was, oh boy, it scared us to, we almost fell down from the concussion and the sound and recoiling from the light and everything else. It was just terrifying. That's the point. Lightning's going to come so fast that we won't see it coming, but we're going to know it's come. That's why the east visible from the west, everybody's going to know it. When Jesus came the first time, he came in a form of a tiny, innocent, vulnerable child in a manger in Bethlehem. But when he comes again, Oh, man, everybody's going to know it. There's not going to be any, uh, oh, I wonder who this might be. People are going to know when it's coming this time. And then in Second Peter also, Simon Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Do you know any thieves that would ring the doorbell and said, hello, hello, hi, are you in there? I'm a burglar. I'm coming to steal all of your primary possessions and everything that's very valuable. Would you bring out your silverware, please? No, they don't do that. They come either when you're away because they've been casing your house and they don't want you around to catch them, or they come when you're asleep at night. They come and it's going to be a shock, but for some who are not abiding in Christ, it's going to be a bad shock, like a thief in the night. It's going to be for them, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So you can see these kinds of shocking, surprising things in the New Testament why would we want to map it all out in our graphs and charts and know exactly who the Antichrist is and who are the ten kingdoms and who's the three that he's going to overthrow? And the Why would we want to know all that if God says we can't know it until he reveals it? And why would we do anything different than we should be doing anyway when we know it's going to come as a shock? The way that we need to live is what I think the scripture is telling us, and that is we need to be ready. We need to be ready by abiding in Christ. Now, here's one reason which I think we need to look at carefully, why we need to be careful not to choose one side over the other and camp out on it and defend it. One of the things that I see about the, the term thousand in scripture, especially when it's used in association with uh, symbolic imagery, like we see in apocalyptic literature, like Daniel and Revelation, 
Let me give you just three brief examples of how the word thousand is used in scripture. For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, does God literally own 1,000 hills? No, he owns everything. So, of course, he owns the cattle on a 1,000 hills. That is a phrase that would mean his ownership is unlimited because he owns everything. How about this one uh, from Deuteronomy? May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a 1,000 times as many as you are. In, a, in other words, I'm going to increase your offspring a 1,000-fold. What does that mean, that he's going to be exactly? No, it means... He's unlimited in his ability to propagate the offspring of the people, like he had done when he promised Abraham that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the grains of sand on a seashore or in the desert. You know, that, yeah, that's a lot, but he's not trying to be literal in using that thousand. Here's another one. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. That's not literal, obviously. It means that God isn't limited in time as we are. So let me just pose a couple of hypothetical things to you and say, are you okay with that, if this is what that means? The reign of a thousand years seems to match up with what Daniel says in God's unlimited reign. When he says in Daniel 7, 14, his rule is eternal. It will never end. That kind of matches with the unlimited reign, doesn't it? And uh, also in Daniel 7, 27, his kingdom will last how long? Forever. So if that's what's happening with this thousand years, then what happens if you've been clinging to a literal thousand years and it turns out to be metaphoric instead? Are you okay with that? If God comes to get you and you've been abiding in Christ and he says, oh, yeah, see, this was metaphoric. Are you going to argue with him? and say, no, it has to be literal, Jesus. <laughs> Doesn't that seem a little silly? So for me, what I'm starting to say is, just as Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, who knows a lot more scripture than I know, would say, I don't let myself get pinned down by any war and any one of these four primary views that people have tried to catalog because we're trying to place all this difficult to understand theology into little boxes that we can say, well, I'm going to claim that this is the right one and I'm going to defend it until I die. I think it's better for us to understand that what we really need to do is to abide in Christ because all of these things are telling us that it's going to be a shock. But for those who are abiding in Christ, it's going to be a good surprise. It's going to be something we should look forward to. And when it happens, it's going to be a joyous celebration day. It's going to be, yes, finally. Oh, man, I've been waiting for this day. And for those who are not abiding in Christ, it's going to be like a thief in the night. And they're going to go, oh, man. Now, listen to Paul's words to Timothy. This is about a different situation when he was saying, don't get involved in foolish and ignorant arguments about genealogies and some other things. But I think it applies to this situation as well. He says, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Is that going to win any soul into the kingdom of God? Can you argue somebody into the kingdom because you have proven that your eschatological viewpoint is the right viewpoint? Modern day legalists can hold the keys to the kingdom and they can lock people out because they trust in their system of theology more than they're trusting in Jesus Christ. I take that seriously, folks. Boy, I take that seriously because there could be some people that would say, I was militant in your name, Lord, and I defended my pre-tribulation viewpoint. And I did it in your name. And he'd say, I never knew you. 
Because if you if you gain the whole world but have not love, what are you doing? You're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. We need to understand the agape kind of love that Christ demonstrated to us on a cross when he gave up all the rights and privileges of heaven so that he could become as a servant and took the form of a human being. Why? To show us how much God loves us. Are we showing other people how much God loves them by our sacrificial love for them? Or are we camping out on our rights because we know we're right? Man, this is important, folks. In this day and age and after this pandemic, this is more important now than I think we even realize because the bride of Christ has gotten a lot of black eyes in this last year. All right, I've gone to preaching and meddling probably. So let me take a breath and say, Lord, help me love people into the kingdom because it's your love that will draw them to yourself, not an airtight argument. I think Paul was very clear about what we ought to be doing. We don't need an airtight eschatology. We need an airtight savior. We need an airtight Jesus Christ because he's the one that made it possible for us to be with him forever in that place that he's preparing for everybody whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Part of the reason I get a little bit uh, passionate about this, I guess, today is that uh, our family lost two very dear family friends just yesterday. Not from COVID this time. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of losses from COVID-19 in this last year. I've done funerals for families who have lost people. Some of you have lost loved ones. And I, my heart just breaks for people who are enduring these kinds of losses. It breaks, especially for those who have seen Christians acting in ways that have not been very loving. That breaks my heart because I think people are missing out on what the gospel is really about. It's that God has a broken heart for lost people enough that he would give his only son to die in their place. But the two that we lost just yesterday, fortunately, were abiding in Christ. One died of cancer. This person knew that they were going to be stepping into the arms of Jesus soon, and she'd been prepared for years. And I'm grateful that for her, it was not a shock. It wasn't a surprise. She stepped right into the loving arms of her Lord and Savior, and she's enjoying eternity forever right now. The other was from spinal meningitis. It was a shock to the family, and it came on quickly, and within 24 hours of the diagnosis, he stepped foot into eternity. Fortunately, we knew that he had a strong confession of his faith in Jesus Christ, and he's in heaven as well. That's the hope of glory that I, I'm saying we need to cling to, folks. That's what we need to be communicating with as much love, even sacrificial love as possible to everybody we know. Not trying to argue them into the kingdom, but to show them by our love for them and our compassion for them that Jesus longs, longs for them to come into the kingdom as well. And if you're feeling a sense of that tugging on your own heart from the Holy Spirit, he longs for you to come into the kingdom. And he wants you to be able to say, God, I need that too. I want to abide in you. I want to be plugged into you like branches into the vine. Because apart from you, I can do nothing. Let's pray and I'll invite you to take that step if you haven't already. Father, I get really passionate about this because I just, 
I get heartbroken seeing how people can become so misdirected by things that I'm sure Satan is just laughing at. He would love to see us get completely pulled away from our real mission, which is to share the gospel lovingly with people and compassionately, which is exactly what you did for us. May people see how much you love them because of what Jesus did for them. And if there's somebody here this morning listening to my voice and wants to say, yes, I want that too. My spirit is resonating with this. I want forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want him to help me live my life so that I don't have to fear whatever happens in the future. I want to be ready for whatever happens, whether there are symbolic tribulations or real time of tribulation, whether the rapture comes tomorrow or a hundred years from now, I want to be ready. I want to be ready so that at the trumpet call for my life, whatever that rapture looks like, if it's me personally, or if there's a tremendous, real, earthly, worldwide rapture, I just want to be ready. Then I pray that you will come into their heart and indwell them to seal that salvation through your Holy Spirit as you promised that you would, so that they can start walking together with so many other believers who are trying to walk in the kingdom light shared so freely with us because of your inspired word. May we look into your word, walk with each other, encourage one another, build each other up, reach out to a lost world in your love together. And I pray that if somebody has prayed that kind of prayer, they'll rejoice and say a prayer of thanksgiving because they're a part of the family of God right now. They've been adopted into your family. And I thank you for that. I thank you that they can continue to walk hand in hand with other believers May they get plugged in and involved in studying your word with other believers, not because we have everything figured out, but because we don't. And we need an airtight savior rather than an airtight eschatology or a view of scripture. I thank you that you want a personal relationship because that's what we need most of all. I pray these things in Jesus' name.